This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain of 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 201st episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we are looking at Green Hornet Golden Age Remastered Number 6 from Dynamite Comics 2010, featuring stories originally published in Green Hornet Comics Number 4 from Helmet Publishing in 1940. But first, a little feedback. Billy D. wrote in on episode 198, featuring Ange and I talking about Black Orchid. Hey, Prof. Just wanted to say hey. Love the subject matter of this episode, but your guest seemed a little shady. Is he really a doctor, or does he just play one on podcasts? I have the first appearance of Black Orchid from Adventure Comics, I believe, and it's fantastic. The artwork alone is worth the price of admission. Cheers. And on last issue, Billy congratulated me on the milestone. 200 episodes is a mammoth number. I enjoyed the conversation with you and Paul. I'm not sure I've ever read that issue of Iron Man, but I'd definitely like to. Thanks for all the good entertainment. Thank you, Billy. Another Bill, this one, Bill from the Bat Pod, reported that he had a mail-order subscription to Iron Man at the time of that issue. And Sir, Sir Martin of Grey wrote in, sent his thanks for the lovely tribute to Mike of Mike's Amazing World. I didn't know he'd done a show. I shall dig in. Well, as I record this, Mart, I'm a bit over halfway through that 16-episode run of Mike's podcast, and it certainly is a -a one-of-a-kind show. His focus is on DC Comics in the early days, the time before Action Comics number 1 and Detective 27. Martin continues, I read Iron Man from 126 to 191. I finally gave up because I was worn out by the long Tony's an alcoholic bit. I know Danny O'Neill had his own issues with the drink, and if memory serves, he thought Iron Man 128 made alcoholism look like a disease you could kick, and quickly. But we saw that Tony didn't cure himself overnight in Demon in a Bottle, and there was an implication that the struggle would be ongoing. I didn't need a couple of years of Tony grounded to make me appreciate how tragic alcoholism is. And Luke McDonald drew terrible spectacles. You know, Mart, I can't say that was a detail I had noticed. So far as this issue goes, Ian Arkin and Brian Garvey were the best inkers. I loved their work on ROM. Mark Bright's workmanlike pencils benefited. Anyway, this is the first time I've read this comic. It's solid, decent, but not splashy enough for a 200th issue, 150 with Victor 
was far more fun. No arguments here. Uh, Martin, no arguments for me. Still, as you say, Denny was good with the subplots. Now, what was it that you said the eye in the Iron Man logo debuting in this issue was? Gosh, it's a rubbish masthead following a dull masthead. Why did they ever lose the classic? Ironmonger, though. What a hilarious name. He won't beat you up. He'll sell you pots and pans. Anyway, love the chat between you and Paul. Bye for now, Mart. Uh, Thank you, friend, uh, as always, for an entertaining response. On my notation that the letter I in Iron Man on that cover resembled an I-beam, Mart replied that he was very confused, wondering what Cyclops had to do with this. And yes, I probably should have said that better. It was an I-beam, the letter I, from construction, not I-beam, E-Y-E. And it turns out that that issue, issue 200, was the first time that that logo appeared, and it lasted only until 215. Next up, the piece of feedback I've been most nervous about receiving regarding that episode. It's from our good buddy, Sir Luke, noted Iron Man expert and superfan. Professor, thank you for the shout-out regarding my Iron Man fandom. I want to echo Paul's opinion that I was somewhat confused by the idea that Iron Man was a B-lister by the time the Avengers film released. I will say that when I started reading Iron Man in the mid-90s, the first issue I bought was 321, cover dated October 1995. Shellhead, and in fact pretty much all the Avengers, could reasonably be called B-list, I guess, since they weren't Spider-Man nor X-Men related. This is what will lead to the infamous Heroes Reborn project and the more successful Heroes Return correction. In the wake of Heroes Return, though, I thought Marvel had slowly built the Avenger characters back into the pillars of the company, coupled by a general softening of the X-Men side of the market. Running into the 2000s, and the high-profile, though comically long-delayed Iron Man Volume 4 by Warren Ellis and Adi Granoff. Once that series launched, I think the writing was on the wall that Marvel wanted Iron Man to be a top guy. That said, this issue is long before all of that. I first read this in the mid-2000s as I was building up my Iron Man collection, I got most of the Denny O'Neill run from a large lot I purchased on eBay, and I can say that reading this run in large chunks is enjoyable. But man, oh man, does Denny put Tony through the ringer. In fact, he puts Rhodey through the ringer, too, for what it's worth. The crushing depths to which Tony sinks in this storyline, see the classic cover to issue 182, a street-dwelling Tony Stark huddled, in a snowy alley with the copy, In the morning, Tony Stark will be sober or dead. Not to speak for Sir Martin, Luke, but I'm guessing it may have been covers like that that finally turned him off to the title. From what I have read, Luke continues, a lot of readers were not happy 
with O'Neill's treatment of Tony in this era. I hope that they stuck around long enough to see his triumphant return here in 200. It's a worthy anniversary issue and still holds up. In the interest of fairness, I will say 200 is much better than 100, which is not bad, but certainly not an epic. 300 is quite good as well, introducing the modular armor and resolving another long-running storyline about Tony's body physically deteriorating. 400 is noteworthy in that it was the first time that Tony came public with his identity as Iron Man. Denny would stick around for a little while after 200, resolving the Bethany Cabe, Madame Mask storyline before moving on. Danny Fingeroff stepped in for a few months prior to the return of Bob Layton and Dave Michelini in 2.15. Now, I wonder if that return was the impetus for ditching the logo that started here at 200. Hmm. Luke continues, saying that the Silver Centurion is a personal favorite armor of his. I like that it visually has a different silhouette than the Red and Gold Model 4, which preceded it, as well as the new Red and Golds, which follow it. O'Neill did give it some new and different abilities than the Model 4, which by issue 200 had been the primary Iron Man armor for nine years, dating back to issue 85. The previous Model 3, the original Red and Gold, goes all the way back to the Tales of Suspense era, debuting in 1965. So changing the armor's shape and function, as well as its color, was a huge shot in the arm for the character coming out of this anniversary, and would stick around for a good while in its own right. The question came up on the episode as to whether Obadiah Stane had actually stayed dead. And surprisingly enough, are you sitting down? The answer is yes. Stane's legacy would be a thorn in Tony's side for many years, including additional ironmonger suits, but the man himself never returned in the mainstream Marvel Universe. The closest has been his spirit, appearing from the underworld a few times in modern stories involving the Marvel pantheon of deities. I presume his presence in those stories is almost entirely due to Jeff Bridges' popular turn as Obadiah in the Iron Man film. Tony was menaced many years later by Obadiah's son Ezekiel, or Zeke Stain, briefly regarding stereo equipment, <laughs> which indeed was one of the topics Paul and I chatted about in that episode. One of the many interesting, at least to me, notes about the development of audio formats is that for many, many years, we had two dominant formats, LPs and cassettes. These two coexisted because they were, despite providing the same product, not directly in competition with each other. The LP was designed to be played at home while the cassette tape was by its nature portable. People had tape decks in their home stereos, but cassettes were mostly used for boomboxes and evolving car stereos, as it was superior in format to 8-track for those uses. The CD, then, became the disruptor. It possessed enough fidelity to challenge the LP, while also being portable enough 
to threaten the cassette. This disruption ultimately led to the demise of both of those earlier formats until CD was displaced by digital, leading LPs and even cassettes to come back in vogue as a nostalgia product. Anyway, I have rambled on long enough. Thanks for the great episode 200 covering my favorite superhero. And here's to 200 more dips into the quarter bin. Sir Luke, thank you, Luke. Thank you for all that info. And Sir Dr. Ange wrote in as well. I've never been a big Iron Man fan, so this was a fun listen, especially the reverberations of it I saw in the Iron Man movie. I did chuckle at the discussion about reality in TV and comics regarding our professions. I can tell you, medical dramas often have a kernel of truth, but are usually more fantasy than fact. There's sort of a a scale. ER is more truthful than House, which is more truthful than Grey's Anatomy or The Resident. My brother was a public defender, and he can't stand law shows. I love Law & Order, mostly the Watterson years, but he hates them. On the other hand, he loves House, and I cannot watch it. (laughs) Yeah, Doc, I know somebody who considers medical dramas to be science fiction because, one, they involve science, and two, they rarely have any connection to real-life medicine. A social media love for last episode came from Julia, Raul, Damien Lee, Sir Manuel of the Avandris Project comic, James Williams, Vic and Phoenix, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Matt McKeegan, the A World on Fire podcast, Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Chris Lydon 7, the Canadian Tokusatsu Donald, Dave's Comics Heroes blog, The Notorious JJG, Ed from Teal Productions, Drew from Comics for Fun and Profit, Chris from Professor Frenzy, Illegal Machine from the Rolled Spine podcasts, Mike K, Pat from the Longbox Crusade, and our good friend Shane Kelly. Thank you all. Comments and support are all appreciated. Which means... It's time to take a break, play a podcast promo, and when we come back, we will jump back in time to 1940. Attention all comic book fans, are you looking for a podcast that delivers the latest news, previews, reviews, and interviews on all things comic books? Look no further than Comics for Fun and Profit, hosted by two brothers, Kyle and Drew, with creator interviews by host Jason from Hawaii. With 800 episodes under their belt in a decade of experience, Kyle and Drew are true experts in the world of comic books. Their passion for the medium shines through in every episode as they share their love for all things comic-related. Whether you're a seasoned collector or just starting out, Comics for Fun and Profit has something for everyone. From classic story arcs to the latest releases, Kyle and Drew keep listeners up to date with everything happening in the world of comics. So why wait? Join the thousands of satisfied listeners who have made Comics for Fun and Profit their go-to podcast for all things comic books. 
With informative and entertaining content, you're sure to have a blast while expanding your knowledge of this beloved medium. Tune in to Comics for Fun and Profit, however you listen to podcasts, and discover why C4FAP is the ultimate podcast for comic book fans everywhere. And we're back. The Greenhorn, Golden Age Remastered number 6, had an original cover price of $3.99, meaning that you would think that I got this comic at a very solid 93.5% discount, except that I did not get this comic from a 25-cent sale. I got it from a dime sale. So technically speaking, I got my copy at an epic 97.5% discount. Boom! Because our LCS the very aptly named World's Greatest Comics, used to have not just quarter books, but they would have all of this as pre-COVID to give you some context for when this all was. But at specific times of years, their anniversary in March, free comic book day, sometimes Thanksgiving weekend, maybe that week between Christmas and New Year's, all of those were potential sales times. Not that they had big sales each of those four times every year, but those were the potential dates for big sales any particular year. And sometimes those prices would get really, really low. My recollection is that this sale, the sale where I picked up a handful of Green Hornet books, was the last time they did dime boxes. What a sale! What a sale! And During that event, I picked up this book, which has a cover by Joe Rubenstein with Tony Avina. The cover is dark, greens and blues and blacks, with our hero and his faithful sidekick Cato striding our direction with purpose. In the background, we see a large double-bladed blade swinging their direction. It is dramatic, and I think it catches the feel, the vibe, that I associate with crime titles of the 30s and 40s. On the inside cover, we have this information. Britt Reed, Playboy, is made publisher of the powerful newspaper The Daily Sentinel by his father, who is retired, in the hope that this new responsibility will have a beneficial effect on Britt. After having lived a youthful, no-account existence, Britt takes his work as publisher seriously and develops a keen interest in rackets that exist only because of the helplessness of law due to legal technicalities. He devotes his life and determination to hunt down these public enemies who can't be reached through the courts. Working at night in disguise, he becomes known as the Green Hornet, None but Cato, his trusted valet, knows Britt Reed's secrets. Now, this issue contains five complete standalone stories alternating in length between eight and six pages, which, yes, does make this a slightly oversized issue containing 40 interior pages, 36 of which are story, closing with four pages of house ads. All of that makes this even a better deal 
at 10 cents than a standard length comic. All five of these stories were originally published in Hellnitz, The Green Hornet Comics, number four from 1940. Note that they contain the various insensitivities that one might expect from a work published in 1940. Although, as we will say, not nearly as bad as many books. These are all based on the stories of Fran Stryker, creator of The Green Hornet, and appear to be adaptations of stories that appeared on radio. The art in each of these stories is credited to Burt Whitman Associates. The comic itself does not contain story titles, although the Grand Comics database at comics.org does contain titles. It's unclear if those were assigned after the fact by the database, or it's possible that they may have been the titles of the radio stories from which these were adapted. I will go quickly through the five stories, and then we'll have our discussion. Each of these begins with a brief paragraph that summarizes the story, which I assume were the opening lines read by the narrator at the start of the radio episodes. The first story doesn't actually have a title other than The Green Hornet. Britt Reed, on vacation in Oldville Center, is framed on a murder rap by racketeers in revenge for the Sentinels' exposure of their deeds. They do not know that he is the Green Hornet, and he refuses to be the Fall Guy. I mean, if you've Smallville and Midvale in comics, why not Oldville? I mean, it sounds like the retirement community I'm going to be looking into in a few years. Uh, Plot-wise on this story, the frame-up is pretty good. They kill a guy in the house where they know Britt is going, and then when he gets there, He's knocked out, then arrested in the presence of the dead body. Now, in jail, he does the old pillows on the bed to make them think I'm asleep trick, while also having dropped a wad of bills on the cell floor. The guard unlocks the gate to sneak in to steal the cash, only to have Brit escape. Cato rolls out in the vehicle that is fortunately not called the Hornet Mobile, but is instead Black Beauty. And it's action time. That you, Blandings? This is the Green Hornet. I'm wise to your scheme. He sets up a meet, and through the wonders of open telephone lines, by keeping a phone off the hook but still connected, the police overhear the bad guy's confession-slash-monologue, And they all get arrested, and all is good. Next up, Tong War. Grim intrigue throws the oriental section of the city into a terrible Tong War. Police try to stop it, but they find they cannot break through the mysterious veil of oriental feuds. Britt Reed becomes interested and investigates on his own, and as the Green Hornet. I'm not here to make excuses, to justify, or to otherwise lessen the stereotypes and other issues that are portrayed in the story, other than to say, 
I have read and seen lots of worse portrayals. In terms of Asian stereotypes, we'll use the modern term Asian instead of their word, but remember that Cato is the sidekick, the trusty companion, the partner. And also, these stories were from 1940. In other words, before Pearl Harbor, before the Empire of Japan declared war on the U.S., and before there was a Pacific theater that we were battling in. Again, these portrayals aren't perfect, they aren't modern, but they aren't bad. Not as bad as they would be starting in 1942. And it's interesting that in this story, Cato is not used in any different way than usual. He does not go undercover just because he's Asian, which is kind of what I was expecting would occur. But as a story, it's a general gang war story. It's fine. And after starting the story as the unworthy Green Hornet, by brokering peace and releasing hostages, he becomes known as the Honorable Green Hornet. Third, crime syndicate. Organized by ingenious and greedy men, a crime syndicate terrorizes the city until the young publisher Britt Reed takes his role as the Green Hornet and challenges the leader to a battle of wits. In this one, Britt Reed, the newspaper publisher, is as involved in solving the crime as is the Green Hornet. He deduces that the syndicate will be robbing the Standard National Bank at night and assigns one of his reporters and a pair of photographers to hide in the bank to document the whole crime. He also, as the Hornet, punches out one of the crooks and leaves him in a garbage can on the street. But in the end, the Hornet and his patented gas gun stop the criminals and the newspaper does the rest. The penultimate story is Little Marty. When someone wants a person bumped off, he usually sees Little Marty to do the job. Marty manages to keep himself out of the hands of the police by clever manipulation until the Green Hornet steps in. This time, one of Britt's reporters is in the field covering a string of murders and regularly dials into the publisher to give updates and receive his new marching orders. It's always good to see the secret identity and the costumed identity getting equal a billing or use in a story where both contribute to the resolution of the story, the solving of the crime and all that. Uh, two bits specifically I wanted to mention in this story. First, they go out to Hidden Ranch at one point in the story, and being a good Midwesterner, I assume that was somehow related to the introduction of ranch dressing, but sadly, no. There is also an amazing scene that some 40-plus years later, Chuck Dixon would do a version of in a Punisher story. Here, the good guys need some information from a bad guy, and so they blindfold him, and Cato holds a burning stick under the guy's nose, while Britt Reed presses an ice-cold rock from the nearby stream 
against his naked chest, which gives the effect of him being tortured. In the Punisher story, you may remember, it was a popsicle pressed against the body. Smell your burning flesh, talk, or I'll burn your chest off. And on the final page, Cato uses one of those rocks again, throwing it at a hoodlum to knock the gun right out of his hand. He even delivers the, maybe these gangsters will learn that crime doesn't pay, line. This story, the fourth story, was really, really good. And we close with Phantom Truck. A mysterious phantom truck causing accidents for honest truck men becomes the concern of the Green Hornet. A string of late-night truck accidents gets the Hornet's attention. Obviously, the trucking boss is trying to gain a, a stranglehold, a monopoly, by killing his competitors. Turns out, he has a huge sheet of mirrored glass that his henchmen would put across the road so it would appear to the oncoming truck driver that another truck was driving right at him. And he would then drive off the road to avoid the collision. Cato drives the Black Beauty one night on the same stretch of road, sees the oncoming headlights, but with courage crashes through the mirror, thus solving the crime. This one was probably a story that worked better in audio than in this printed uh, visual form as it does seem pretty unbelievable when you see the mirror and see the plan working itself out. But I bet that hearing the driver's terror, the squeaking of brakes, the crashing of the mirror, I bet that was all very exciting in audio format. The end. Now, when I was a kid... I have memories of listening to rebroadcasts or reruns of old-time radio programs with my family. My dad especially really dug these. I'm guessing that these were on the radio Saturday or Sunday night, probably WMAL in Washington. It's also possible that these were on records. So we borrowed a ton of records from the local public library, so that is also a possibility. But whatever the source, the old-time radio programs that I have the clearest memory of listening to back then were The Shadow and The Lone Ranger. We listened to a ton of those episodes. Beyond that, there are a few titles that I have weaker memories of, listening to maybe just one or two or three episodes, certainly many less than The Shadow or The Lone Ranger. But in that category, along with Superman and Sherlock Holmes, was the Green Hornet. Now this was in the early 1970s, and they were considered, at that point, really old-time radio shows. So as far as I know, what we were listening to may well have been from this era uh, of the comic books, from the late 30s and early 40s, again, those details are certainly lost to time, but that is what I suspect. I say all of that 
to say that although I don't have a ton, quantitatively, of experience with the Green Hornet, those few experiences that I have had with the character are nostalgic and qualitatively very positive. So there is a chance that my positive feelings about this issue, and spoilers, I have very positive feelings about this issue, or at least in part due to that history, to that nostalgia that I'm bringing regarding this property from this general era. Again, all that being said, I thought this was quite good. All the stories were standard crime and mobster stories, and only the last one with the truckers and the mirror. That's the only one that was below average in terms of the plot. The other four made enough sense, moved along well enough, and were enjoyable in this medium, in in comic books. Again, that last one with the truck and the mirror may actually have been very good in the audio medium, but certainly as a comic story, it, it, it was easily the weakest of these five. This book is very 1940, and I mean that in a couple of ways. First, this is wordy. If you've read a good amount of Golden Age stories, you know what that means. And these are each examples of compressed storytelling. Things move fast. A full story, which may have been, I don't know, a 15-minute radio segment, maybe, is mashed into six or eight pages. Lots of things happen. The Hornet gets in some good punches on the regular, utilizes that gas gun, and also lots and lots of words fill the pages. Now, one thing you don't get much of, and this is also very 1940, is character beats, character moments. Certainly, there's no character growth, no change. You needed to be able to tune in every week or read the comic every month and know for sure, 100%, the kind of story you're going to get and the character traits of the recurring characters. But from a modern perspective, this lack of growth, this lack of any change, not to mention lack of side plots or B stories, it's a little off-putting. It's not the way comics have been made since, probably since Amazing Fantasy 15. So this is very old-fashioned in its approach, I tend to look at that and consider it charming. Others may find it, like I said, off-putting. Even when they had a golden opportunity right there on a platter to explore Cato's backstory in the Chinatown story, his ethnicity is never mentioned in terms of how he might be able to understand, explain, heck, even translate, or as I said, go uncover anything. But no, that's not what we did with main characters back then. Now, these days, it's all about the more we know about a character, the better. But back then, it seems like it was the less we knew about a character, the better. I mean, in terms of their history and background and family, unless it directly tied to their origin. We just didn't know these characters. They were ciphers. 
I do like, as I said before, that there's a nice mix of Britt Reed and the Hornet in terms of which identity is the driver of the story, even is the hero, is the crime solver in some cases. Sometimes it's Britt, sometimes it's the Hornet. And that's a nice touch, a nice break in what could otherwise become a pattern, a repetitive formula. But that is avoided, at least in this collection. There's also one very nice touch in one of the stories, because it's made clear that Britt Reed operates the newspaper during the daytime, and the Hornet operates at night. In one panel, home from the newspaper, he tells Cato that he needs to take a nap so the Green Hornet can work later. I liked that little nod to reality, that acknowledgement, that sleep is necessary even to heroes. It's a nice human touch. Now, I'm curious what the word remastered means in terms of this title, The Green Hornet Golden Age Remastered. I'm not sure, but if any changes were made, if this is more than just a representation, that remastered might mean something about the color process. The art itself is total 1940s, nothing dramatic in the panel layouts or anything like that. I guess with the exception, and this is something we don't see a lot of these days, is that each story had a handful of round panels, which did break up the flow of right-angled, square, or rectangular panels. That was the extent of layout creativity in this era. But the coloring, that was probably redone. I don't think the color choices were altered much. It is still bright colors, mostly primary colors. Little in the way of backgrounds beyond what was needed to set the scene. Little artistic flair. Just workmanlike scene setting. Which again seems very 1940 to me. We have to remember comic books are in their infancy at this point in time. Actually, now that I say that, perhaps what I like about this is that it is a comic book. A decent amount of what I've read featuring characters from this era are in fact comic strip collections. I'm thinking Dick Tracy here. And daily strips can be really hard to read in a collected form. You have to put your mind, well, let me speak for myself. I have to put my mind in a totally different place to read a batch of collected comic strips, adventure strips because they get so repetitive. That's the nature of that storytelling. So maybe in my mind I was expecting that, expecting comic strip stories, instead of stories formatted for the medium of comic books. And let me just say, that makes a big difference. Like I said, the big drawback you might have with this issue is that second story, the Chinatown story, the Tong War. But again... It could have been a lot worse. So, for me, expectations exceeded and worst fears not realized. So this is not going to be a surprise, but let me make it official. The verdict on the Green Hornet Golden Age Remastered number six. Let me put it this way. 
I had issues 6, 7, and 8 in the Quarterbin database. But as soon as I read this one, I grabbed those others and graduated all three of those into the main official collection. And a day or two after reading this for the first time in the podcast prep phase, I actually saw issue three in a 50-cent box and immediately grabbed it. So all of a sudden, I find myself with four of the eight issues of this run in my collection, and the other half of the run is totally on the want list. So yes, I like this a lot. In normal circumstances, this would be a quarter bin deal. But if you remember how little I actually paid for this, this is a dime box steal. And that wraps up our coverage of the Green Hornet Golden Age Remastered number 6, bringing episode 201 of the Quarterbin Podcast to a close. Next time, I am fulfilling a promise I made a few episodes back when I did an analysis of episodes 101 through 199 of this show, in which I commented that I wanted to try and read more current books on the show, like books from the 2020s that end up in the cheap bins. And in that spirit, we will be looking at sword number one. That's S period, W period, O period, R period, D period. Number one from Marvel Comics, cover dated February 2021. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, Nostalgia, Golden Age Comics and Characters, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. The song in this episode is Red Lips by Deoxys Beats. You can find their music at soundcloud.com slash Deoxys Beats 1. I found the music at free-stock-music.com and I'm playing the song here under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 unported license. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>